Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Joe Robinson, and through a wire all the way over in East London is my colleague and co-host, James Spender. Mr. Spender, how are you, sir? Good afternoon, Joseph. I am very well. I went to the Isle of Wight on Friday and it was quite nice. Nicer than Lovely. I remembered. Did you download the Track and Trace app? I didn't download the Track and Trace <laughs> app, no. I downloaded a GPX file to my Garmin, but no, I did not download it. Went for a nice ride. How, how was riding on the Isle of Wight? How was it? Uh, it was, I would suggest a good word to describe it is bucolic, and another word would be pedestrian. So some great, really good cycle paths, actually. Sustrans have done a fantastic job on the island. It's a real family-friendly kind of place. Mm. And it's got really, what? Well, yeah, I mean, it's an island, right? Obviously, it's got coastline, but it's got some really quite beautiful coastline. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, great place to visit. And I think they're still accepting visitors. I don't believe I brought anything into the country. You don't have to quarantine for 14 days. No, no cane toads, no COVID. Did you White's see any famous. of the Isle of Wight's famous residents? including uh, Marky King from Level 42 and uh, Dan Martin, the pro rider for Israel Startup Nation. He has a, a, a has family in the Isle of Wight, I think. No way, does he really? Yeah, he does, he does. No, didn't Did you see, see, didn't see any of them. No, no, didn't see any witches either. Another thing the island's famous for, or ghosts of smugglers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, didn't see that many um, other sort of like motorists and stuff though either was other things pretty quiet although it's quite a lot of beach guys and that but yeah it's nice oh good how about you Jamie? how have you uh how have you been bearing up over the last fortnight what's happened to you in the life of joseph robinson what Esquire? has happened to joe robinson esquire um my other passion in life is football as people may know you probably won't know but i'm telling you now i like football i play football on weekends and the government lets us play again uh, some bits of my back are hurting that I didn't know existed um, because it was the first time I'd actually run since March over the weekend, just gone. Um, and yeah, very sore, very sore. Um, also enjoying the return of bike racing, James. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. last week we had the CBU tour in Romania, um, which returned with a five stages across four days in the CBU region of Romania. Um, Bora Hansgrohe dominated, uh, Gregor Mulberger won the overall race. Um, but then there was a bit of, bit of trouble because while the race was happening, the Italian health minister declared that anyone returning from Romania to Italy would have to quarantine for 14 days, meaning that anyone took part in the race no longer can return to Strada Bianche, which happens this Saturday, the 1st of August two days after this will go out live mm -hmm. and then also they will not be able to take part in Milan San Remo so that's a bit of an issue if you were a Bora Hands Grower Sonia and you were planning to be at both races um, also there were three one day races in Spain uh, it got kick started with the CCC live team refusing to race the first two of them because of uh, Covid protocols and not believing that they were up to scratch. Uh, they all went ahead and they were all won by world champion Annemiek van Vluten, who has currently raced four days in 2020 and won all four of them. Um, what else has happened in the cycling industry? James Garmin had a blackout for five days. Oh, they did, didn't they? They did. So we're recording this on Monday and some systems are coming back up online, but 
basically what had happened is an online hacking Russian-based gang called Evil Corp had committed a ransomware attack, which I believe is when they take a company's data and say they will not return it until they have paid a sum, a sum of 10 million US dollars, I believe it was. Um, And it basically downed all of the systems from their emails to Garmin Connect, which was the big effect for cyclists. But the bigger worry beyond our cyclists was that sort of Garmin is used in the aviation and nautical industries uh, very, very much so. So I think that's a bit more of a concern for Garmin than, you know, us not being able to upload a ride to Strava. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think we can we can probably get by with manually uploading via USB for a bit. Um, and also, it seems like every single bike in the entire world has launched since we last spoke, James. Yep, that's so, very true. Little list. I'll list them off. The ones that I can remember. I've, so, Trekamonda. Tick. Tick. Merida Skultura Endurance. Yep. Tick. The Cervelo Caledonia, tick. And then there's also the Canyon Grail on, the first electric gravel bike from Oof. the German brand. I had that one turn up at my house um, oh, yeah. for the embargo for the launch, and it's an absolute chunky boy. It is 16 kilos has 50 mil tires and has used a e-system, a, a motorized system, the Bosch Performance Line, which is designed for MTBs, mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went out for a ride on it and wow, that thing is a beast and can take me through brick walls as well <laughs> as it can just absolutely m- munch through sand and anything. It was that bike's a lot of fun. I'm going to put it that way. I'm going to do a full review of it for cyclist.co.uk. Uh, but first impressions is that bike's not designed for people that can't, you know, e-bikes are not for those who cannot ride a bike any longer. This bike is for those who just want to be mental on trails, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Well, get prepared for all of those. Uh, He's a heathen. This is an abomination. Uh, oh, that, that's, that happens to me anyway, regardless of what bike I'm on. I'll tell you what, though. That's one thing, you know, not to bang the e-bike drum too loudly, but it does have its detractors. And on the Isle of Wight, there was an old fella who stopped at a cafe and he had, you know, when you have those like really sore looking knee braces that have got kind of pins going into the bone through the skin, you know, those kind oh, of Oh, yeah, yeah. I know the ones. Yeah. Um, and he... I would, I'd, I'd say that he just looked like he was a cyclist and that looked like maybe some cycling-related injury. Anyway, point being, he arrived on an e-bike and managed to hobble over to get himself a coffee. And it's like, that guy is not going riding unless he's got an e-bike. And exactly. yet here he is. So anyone that has an issue with e-bikes, just always consider that. It is just absolutely fantastic for people that would struggle to ride a bike um, otherwise. And, and so all, of you that, all of you that do moan about e-bikes, I think we'll do an episode on this in the next <laughs> All right. The e-bike moaning episode. That, yeah, that's well, no, because f- first of all, uh, Eddie Merckx rides an e-bike, so if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for you. And yeah. secondly, you know, I can guarantee that the people that moan about e-bikes being not real bikes and cheats have never actually ridden one. Because once you do ride them, you just remember that, you just think, well, what's the point of me struggling up a hill 
when I could just get some help and it's much more fun. Yeah, uh, that's it. Cycling should be fun. Yeah, cycling should be fun and it still hurts. It's still hard to ride an e-bike. You're just riding at 25, 25 kilometers an hour off a climb instead of 10. You know, it, I don't know. Don't let Should me I go. Get... I'll, I'll keep on going. James, you know what? Let's get into things we like and things we don't like. Okay, go on then. Uh, do you want to hang kick on, us off? Hang on, hang on the jingle. Oh, I've got to put oh, the jingle oh, on oh, okay. right here. Right, James, uh, you start this week. Uh, so tell me something that you like, please. Um, off the back of this Isle of Wight ride, I like riding more slowly and meeting people through bikes. And I'll tell you why, because I went riding with my old man, uh, with my father on the Isle of Wight, and we managed three three coffee stops before lunch, then lunch, then a pint. But it was great. We took the whole day really nice and easy, really sat up and kind of smelled the roses and had a good chat and stuff. He's 74 uh, at the weekend. So I'm oh, happy so birthday, pleased. Mr. Spender. Yeah. Oh, well, he's, he sends his thanks, if he could only hear you. So I'm really pleased that he's still out riding. And on his uh, on this ride, we met this guy that he'd my father had met out cycling, uh, a chap called Steve. So hello, Steve, if you're listening. Um, hello, Steve. Just, su- just a super nice guy, just someone that really liked bikes. My dad got talking to him on a previous ride because he just pointed at my dad's bike and was just like, how long have you been out for? Indicating that my dad had rather a lot of luggage. And my dad just didn't really kind of quite get it to start with. And was just like, well, just the day. But anyway, fully loaded Genesis out for the day. And yeah, went for so met up with Steve again, went for a ride with him. Super lovely bloke. Strangely enough, told me a story because he works in teaching and education about an Isle of Wight school getting a ransomware attack like Garmin a few Ooh, years ago. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. And they had to do paper registers for a whole year. <laughs> That's, I, I mean, I'm not against paper registers. No, but um, I think it was very difficult for the school. It probably cost... Um, probably created a generation of kids that might be slightly underachieving i don't i don't know. i don't want to point point the fingers at them and but, you know, ransomware ransomware gets everywhere and what's that you don't like james uh something i don't like i really hate rubbish quick releases yes there are bikes i still use with quick releases i still ride rim brakes there's a couple save of the rim brake hashtag save, save the rim brake yeah, more on that later brake. yep um and within that badly set up bikes there are just too many bikes that come we've mentioned this before yeah and it's not just us as from our you know with our journalist hats on it's in our ivory towers yeah in our massive ivory towers made out of magazines that no one's buying because everything's digital no um it's badly set up bikes and it's friends as well that receive these things the disc brakes constantly banging like this the disc brakes will be rubbing because the frames haven't been faced the headset will be a bit loose uh Mm. the tires well, sometimes they're not even properly like mounted, so you can see they haven't been pumped up, and they're not like underneath the bead, and it's and there's just a litany of, of 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 errors and things that really need addressing when you're buying a very expensive bike. It shouldn't come with a bent mech hanger. Don't, well, they, this care. is this is an issue that's particularly prevalent now because bike sales are at an all time high, and so many people are getting into cycling that don't have a background in bike riding. So when a bike turns up at your house, James, or mine, or one of our colleagues, we are experienced in working with these bikes. So if a disc brake is rubbing slightly, we can adjust that. If a headset's not loaded properly, we can 
undo and redo up the bolts necessary. But if a friend of ours who's new to the bike world orders their new road bike that they're very much looking forward to riding this summer and it comes with one of these issues, it's going to put them off, isn't it? It's And they're going yeah. to have problems out of the gate. They're not going to be able to... You know, if you bought a brand new car and it came with uh, discs that rubbed or the door didn't shut properly... You wouldn't accept that. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. we do in the bike world. <laughs> yeah, well, there we go. I mean, the bike is an incredibly simple thing, and yet sometimes it still isn't quite right. Mm. But yeah, that's that's a that's a minor gripe. And I just thought of one more thing I wanted to add to my list of likes. It's fantastic that one of the fallout good things that have come off the back of this uh, pandemic business is our government is finally recommending that the two-thirds of the population, adult population in the UK, who are overweight or obese get on a bicycle they're recommending gps to recommend cycling for fitness which is just brilliant like i'm just so up for more people getting on bikes not just for their health but everyone else's the fewer cars on the road for those 68 percent of journeys under five miles in this country the better i i agree wholeheartedly heartedly and i'll get off my soapbox now and i'll ask you joe what do you like what do I like? Uh, so the last two review bikes that I've had to, to review for cyclist.co.uk have been the giant TCR Advanced Pro 1, the old TCR now. We've had it. It's been updated since. Um, excellent bike, though. And I'm currently on a Cervelo R3. And both came with Shimano Ultegra Shimano, DI2 group sets, which I bloody love, James. I think it is a it is the peak the pinnacle of group sets. Um, yes, Dura Race exists. Yes, Dura Race is lighter. It's also slightly better, apparently, at shifting and a little bit more durable. But it's also quite a bit more expensive than Ultegra. Um, and Ultegra does everything that you could want it to. Um, I also believe wholeheartedly that you could ride a Shimano Ultegra group set through the bottom of the ocean and it would probably still work on the other end. Yep. Um, those things are incredibly hardy. Um, and I've just come to appreciate that, you know, sometimes the top spec is obviously the one with all the bells and whistles, but the ones below it are really, really good. And I really like Ultegra DI2. So that's something I like, James. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I get that. SRAM, Force One, ETAP is a similar thing. You've got Red Axis, that's white at the top of the chain significantly more expensive the force version of uh of axis is um arguably just exactly the same just ever so slight different finish and a little bit heavier so yeah I'm and with called you, force and not red and called force and not red force yeah. is a stronger name isn't it sounds more like you really mean business with those shifts but then the red anyway. the red uh chain sets look better they look like throwing discs so swings and roundabouts that is true. Swings and rounders. So uh, that's excellent. That's great news. Now, do tell me something that you dislike, please. Well, so James, I don't like the fact that Team Ineos will be called Ineos Grenadiers Ooh. at the Tour de France and therefore promote gone from saving the wows and passing on plastic at the 2018 Tour de France and having an orca on their back to then promoting a diesel-powered 4x4 that does 40 miles to the gallon, if you're lucky, um, two years later, 
because obviously they're new. They have new sponsors. Well, they don't have new sponsors. The sponsors have been around for a year, but they're a petrochemical company that produce quite bad things for the environment and now also produce a diesel car. Um, but I also don't like people that blame the riders or even David Brailsford because I don't think it's Garrett Thomas's fault. And he is just a paid athlete who's paid to ride their bike. Um, and I don't think he can do much in terms of turning around and saying no to Jim Ratcliffe, who pays a lot of money to promote his products via the main medium of a cycling team. Uh, it's a very complicated pro- um, idea and a complicated argument. And I wrote about it to cyclist.co.uk and I did get some criticism from my article. Just fair enough. You can criticize mm-hmm. me. I don't mind. I've yep. got thick skin. But you know what? Our the bike world and the bike industry and pro cycling is a pretty murky place anyway. Cycling is not a sustainable sport. Ironically, for like the most sustainable form of transport and the most efficient form of transport, every single race is really terrible for the environment because of everything that goes alongside it, such as helicopters and hundreds of cars and motorbikes. And also, uh, do you know how many bidons your average pro team uses in a year in the World Tour? Uh, hundreds, if not thousands. 25,000. 25,000. And yes, most of those do go to uh, spectators Fans. on the side. Yeah, uh, which is a lovely, you know, getting a bidon as a spectator is one of the best things that can happen to especially youngsters. But that's not even going to be sort of permissible at the moment due to COVID and the protocols. Um, yeah. Some some teams have said that they're not going to be giving away bottles. So, but yeah, uh, that's what I don't like. That really murky part of the world of our sport that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And if you write about it, you're probably damned as well, as I found out. Uh, <laughs> oh. But it's all right because bike racing's back, so we can all forget about it. It's fine. Yeah. Um. That's anyway, so let's move on to the episode proper, James. Uh, after this message. We here at Cyclist have always championed the many benefits of riding your bike, so we are proud to support the Bike is Best campaign. Bike is Best is a call for a nationwide behaviour change, building on the increasing recognition of cycling as part of the COVID-19 recovery and encouraging its further uptake. The goal is to make sure the newly promised nationwide government spend on cycling infrastructure goes to all the right places. The more voices we have, the louder we can shout to demand what is needed in order to ensure riding a bike is safe, easy and most importantly fun. If you want to get involved then all you have to do is head to bikeisbest.com and make a pledge to support the initiative and ride your bike more. It's that simple. So just head to bikeisbest.com to make your pledge today. So James, you'll notice when I listed off those bikes earlier, I left off pretty a pretty big exception, and that was the Specialized S-Works Tarmac SL7. Probably the biggest bike launch since the turn of the year. Sorry, Trekamonda, but this is a big bike, 18 years old this year, isn't it, James? And it's yep. got it's undertaken some big changes for this big birthday, hasn't it? Yeah, so uh, since its little introduction way back when, the aluminium Tarmac E5 2002, it has now come back, ground up redesign, it's faster, it's lighter, it is just better uh, all round, it's got a really quite slick paint job as well, which you'll see 
if you tune into cyclist.co.uk and check out the video that Stu Bowers uh, has mm. done about the first ride on it. It's got this really lovely trick paint. So it's a beautiful looking bike and has got some really quite exciting changes. Yeah, so we wanted to put some of these changes and some of the stuff that Specialized has developed in this bike to the people that made it. So me and James worked our little magic and got the product manager of the Tarmac SL7, Cameron Piper, on the show to, put, to basically ask these questions to, didn't we, James? So shall we listen to the interview now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Thanks for coming on to the show, Cameron. Uh, you are one of the project managers, if not the lead project manager, on the latest Specialized S-Works SL7. Um, so I think the, by way of an introduction, just introduce yourself and, and your what your involvement has been with the new bike from Specialized. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Cameron. I am a product manager at Specialized on the road team, and I am the product manager for the new Tarmac Cazal 7. Awesome. Um, so let's start off with quite a heavy hitting question. So the new Tarmac is a lightweight race bike. It's, um, you know, as light as the previous SL6. But the big takeaway from it, from what me and James have discussed before this, is that it's become incredibly more aerodynamic, almost as aerodynamic as your current Venge. Uh, and you said, Specialized said that one of the reasons for this is because you don't want to have to compromise between aero and lightweight. So now that the tarmac's got so close to the Venge in terms of aerodynamics, but it's still so light, it's still at that UCI limit, is the aero bike dead? Uh, I think that that's a great question. That's actually the, the main reason behind the new tarmac SL7 is that it's not only the aero bike that is dead, the idea of a climbing bike as well is also a bit old fashioned. We have the technology to create a bike now that's built at the, the UCI weight limit under that regulation, uh, as well as uh, as arrow as anything else that's in the peloton. So if riders have to pick a, a specific climbing or aero bike, they're making some sort of sacrifice and we're able to create a bike now that allows riders to have no compromises and have that best uh, performance from both ends of the spectrum. And you, you developed this bike with your two pro world tour teams, uh, the Koenig Quickstep and Bora Hansgrohe. So are they, was that something that they really wanted? Was they, did they want a bike that they didn't have to choose between? Uh, or was it more from the brand's point of view that you wanted to give them an option that so they no longer had to opt between the Venge and the Tarmac when racing? Yeah, we've had a really good relationship with all of our World Tour athletes over the last almost two decades. And, you know, simply put, they, they say they like different attributes of one bike and some of a different... Uh, and for them, having to make a decision on race day is always a challenge. We have a team of uh, engineers and people who are simulating different courses to assure a rider that they're going to have the best bike on race day. And at this point now, we knew, you know, for them to have the mentality of never having to make that choice is also a, a big performance benefit. So they were certainly asking for it. And with the, um, the new frame shape, so it's changed, it has changed in terms of the tube shapes from the outgoing SL6. So how did Specialized initially go about that? And how did it sort of start this project of becoming a much more aerodynamic all-rounder bike? Yeah, we have a, 
a doctrine called the new shape of speed, something that takes specific shapes and ensures that they're not only more aerodynamic, but also still balancing the weight and stiffness of, of the tube shape itself. So we use these uh, free foil shape library shapes uh, across different parts of the frame to optimize around where the performance matters the most. So if you wanna have uh, a more aerodynamic bike, then we choose more aero shapes for your fork blades, your head tube, or maybe your seat tube and seat, seat stays. But then other tube shapes like your down tube or top tube, we can optimize more around the weight and, and ride quality or stiffness to ensure that we can still hit all of our very aggressive targets. And you, you, I mean, the new tarmac isn't as fast as the Venge. So there is the, the Venge, the, the Venge that still exists in the range is still a little bit faster when it's wind tunnel tested. But I guess that the benefits of the handling and the, and also the lightweightness of the new tarmac means that that lost them lost watts that lost top end speed that you're getting from the venge is kind of negligible now almost in a way right you kind of nail it on the head there it's it's a very marginal difference it's something that you can measure aerodynamically in the tunnel but for real world situations we can simulate to show that the additional benefits from the tarmac has a seven truly make it the best bike or best equipment choice for any race james um, I was just going to, for the people that haven't seen it, because we're talking to uh, to Cam slightly ahead of the actual launch, can you run us through the main headline changes between the SL7 and the SL6? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a wholesale change across the entire frame. Uh, all the tube shapes are redefined and uh, re-engineered when it comes to where we're optimizing for air performance and also for weight and ride quality. Uh, some of those most striking differences are now the integrated cockpit, where you have clean cable routing that's run through your head tube, uh, but then just the, the more aggressive tube shaping when it comes to your fork blades and your seat tube and seat stays that really show the performance and an aero potential for the bike itself. Okay, cool. And you've also got um, significantly bigger tire clearances in there as well. But yeah, yeah we. When a lot of brands are, because you're at 26 mil, you're shipping most bikes with 26 mil tires, whereas a lot of brands we're seeing at the moment building around a 28 mil. Why, why is that? Yeah, so we're we're still shipping with 26, just uh, from both an eight uh, weight and air perspective. Those are tires that are doing well for for racing, but the frame is compatible with up to 32 C tires, so still pretty wide tire clearance, and a lot of that is done because it's not coming at the detriment of any air performance or weight gain or any ride quality or, or stiffness concerns. So riders have the versatility to run a wider tire for compliance or uh, rougher roads if, if required in racing. Nice. Um, and I very much doubt you remember this, but many years ago I tested the Venge Vias and I was that annoying journalist firing lots of emails to you, each one containing the line, and this is the last question, and then the next one being, but... Uh, and I was chatting to you and your colleague, Eric Schuder at the time, and you both said with the Venge, you were partly looking to develop that, in your words, holy shit moment when you get on the bike and you first kind of kick off from standstill. So that's designing around that zero degrees yaw, so the wind coming perpendicular to the bike ultimately. And that's a very specific frame shape, which we've now seen the back of. Was that kind of hard to let go of that dream and that super aero bike? Uh, you know, the reality is we're at the point where we now have a bike that is as fast as Venge Vias, but it's almost a kilogram lighter. 
So there still is somewhat of a holy shit moment just from the new tarmac, really, uh, because the perception of speed is is still there and it's quite drastic. So I wouldn't say we've stepped away from that, but I've said that I'd say that we've really refined it over the years to still create a more complete bike uh, that's giving riders all the benefit that we we dreamed about even five years ago. And that that sort of quest for the perfect all-rounder bike that you you believe that you've got very close to the tarmac lsl7 is something that's shared by some of your rivals like the new trekamonda for instance has become more aerodynamic uh the new giant tcr also has taken on aero cues have we got to a point where bike brands like specialized sort of giant uh, are, you can't go any further with super light and super aero because of the uci weight limit and the, the restrictions on geometry and that until the UCI say, actually, you know what, brands can develop bikes safely under 6.8 kilos, that it's going to be this sort of quest for an all-in-one bike? Yeah, I think with the UCI, there are regulation, and a lot of that does paint you into a box. So it's not surprising that a lot of the industry follows similar trends. I think it's whoever might get there first, and you're one step ahead of, of the competition in order to give riders the best possible benefit when it comes to that product itself it's it's always a, a question of what happens when either the weight limits removed or specific tube shaping uh, requirements change and whether those things happen you know we're always innovating and trying to understand better ways to optimize a race machine and we'll certainly be there to be one step ahead if those those rules do change and something me and james noticed is that the new tarmac is saying goodbye to a lot of things that used to be sort of part and parcel with bikes. For instance, you've gone to a threaded bottom bracket shell, uh, moving away from the bottom, uh, the press fit. Uh, there's no one piece bar and stem. You produce the AeroFly, which is a, a separate stem and aero handlebar. And also there'll be no rim brake option with the SL7. So that's like a very big step for a, a huge brand like Specialized to make, especially with the completely doing away with rim brake option. What's the sort of rationale between those those choices? When it comes to disc brakes, you know, we've been one of the first brands in the industry that have really started to create performance road bikes with disc brakes. If you look back to the Tarmac SL5, uh, five years ago, even just, just over five years ago, we, we had our first disc brake road bike then. Uh, and since then, we've always been innovating around the idea of disc brakes. And we do believe that it's the platform for riders for the best possible performance and also has allowed us to do a lot when it comes to the frame development and shaping for different tubes, as well as just the integration of, of your cables. And the move to BSA threaded was one that helped us to create a more compact DB that's not only lighter, but then when it comes to uh, the reliability side and giving riders something that gives them a tight system with complete drivetrains. So running your Shimano bottom bracket with your Shimano drivetrain uh, and ensures other systems are running as smoothly or properly as possible um, and best possible performance. And then with the integration of your front end and choosing to have uh, a separation between your bar and stem gives riders the, the ease of adjustability. So knowing that they can change their fit without having to rerun their lines whether that's changing their stack or their stem length and that's a an important part even at the top level of sport in in racing and we're not really giving much up by having to do that 
just helping out the mechanics and helping out the riders to know that they always can make those changes if needed. Mm. Just going back to the, the rim brake uh, sort of conversation, in the cyclist office, there's, there's a, a healthy split down the middle of those who are now fully converted to the, the church of uh, disc. And some of us that are holding on to, to sort of rim, myself included, I guess from your perspective as a project manager, when you get feedback from not only pros, but also your customers, your, your clientele, which is probably the most important people for Specialized, I guess there are people that still champion rim break and still want that option, especially pro riders, because they can be quite sticklers for tradition a lot of the time, shall we say. Yeah, tradition is a big thing in cycling in general, and I think it's part of even just the UCI regulation. A lot of that is is based in tradition for having a bicycle continue to be a bicycle, and it takes time. It takes time for people to get used to something. You know, you might be res- resistant to try it initially, and and once you're on it for a little while, it's it becomes apparent of why everything's moving in that direction. And even from just drivetrain manufacturers, you can see the improvements that have been made over the last couple of years. Whereas on the rim brake side, things were more or less stagnant. There hasn't been much innovation when it comes to caliper rim brakes. Um, and even just in our new revolved wheel line with the ability to not have to worry about a brake track on those rims, we're creating new shapes that offer not only a, a weight and aero benefit, but also stability when it comes to a decrease in steering response that uh, you get from crosswinds or something that really will help riders uh, enjoy their their ride a little bit more um so there's lots of other side effects from the ability to go to hydrologist brakes outside of just the thought that you know oh maybe at one point in time they were just heavier or it's just something different but you know they truly are better and we're excited about how that's shifting in that direction so that's a that's a message for you there joe they truly are better that's why the industry, the people that know, you have to understand that Joe is a bit of in the church, church of the disc brake, Joe is considered a heathen, an outcast. And he's also very similar when it comes to tubeless tires. He'd far rather be running his uh, tubulars at 200 PSI on some incredibly narrow rims. Mm. You guys just brought out the Rovals, uh, update to the Rapids, um, varying height profiles, 60 mil at the rear and 51 at the front, I think, is that right? But you've gone really wide. You've gone to that 21 mil internal, which is almost becoming, again, a bit of a standard. But even though you've done away with the brake track because you don't need rim brakes, you haven't gone tubeless. Why is that? Yeah, the, the new Revolve line, it was a, a very challenging wheel set to create. We were with some very aggressive targets, both aerodynamically and weight-wise. And during development, we are we're very much behind tubeless. We believe it's a, an important technology in the, in the future for high performance road. But the sacrifices we were going to have to make for this new wheel line was going to uh, make it difficult to reach the targets that we have set out for this wheel set. Um, so as a product team, we decided that for the time being with the new Revolve repeated rims, they're going to be uh, more focused on these aggressive targets so that riders can have that benefit with the Tarmac SL7. And we'll continue to see where tubeless could take us in the future. And when it's ready, it will be ready and we'll be behind that. So still, that's still a direction that Specialized would like to go with the, with the Revals. Absolutely. I think even if you look at the, the line of other rims like the Terras, those are still tubeless compatible and, and even previous generation wheels. And 
Um, for those experiences where maybe it's a little bit lower pressure, it's still a 100% viable option and uh, absolute benefit. And we believe some at some point in the future that road will be there as well. Mm -hmm. What did you guys, as uh, your engineering team and project management team, think of claims from a company such as Zip when they came out with their latest 303 and their kind of tubeless interface system with that, their tubeless tire? And it's incredible claims of how much, how many watts you could save running these tires at like 28 mil, sort of like 55 psi, which is incredibly low. Where does that? How does that figure in your thinking and what did you make of it? Yeah, for some of the other claims of the market, there's lots of asterisks, I would say, in terms of how the tubeless should be run, which creates a, a lot of confusion on the market for riders. And we believe that you know once this technology is ready to go, it should be something that's pretty versatile in terms of the choices that a rider might want to make when it comes to the tower choice and the pressures they're running. And uh, I, I believe that the claims they're making are, are probably there and, and proper when it comes to the specifics that they have for the different pressures and tires they're running. Uh, but once we're to the point where it's a little bit more versatile, it'll be more feasible for most riders. Mm -hmm. So with the, bringing it back to the tarmac, so with the new tarmac SL7, you've kind of bridged the gap to the Venge in terms of aerodynamics, but then there's still this other end of the, the spectrum, which is the comfort, the endurance. And with that, you've got the Roubaix uh, that you still that you brought out in last last spring. Now, wasn't it? Time time has really flown. Uh, it feels like a long time ago. Um, but I guess for Specialized, there must have been a time where you were looking at potentially introducing the Future Shock 2.0 to the tarmac. Would that have been? Was that ever on the table in in terms of introducing that suspension system and that added comfort? Because we know from the Roubaix that it doesn't really affect the bike speed too much because the Roubaix is an incredibly fast bike, both in the wind tunnel and as Phil Gilbert proved at Roubaix. Yeah, so we, we certainly learn a lot from every project that we have. And the Roubaix is a bike that's very specific in its its uses, and especially in racing uh, on road and, and more just races like Paris-Roubaix. Uh, for the tarmac, it's there are more targets that are centered around the overall uh, arrow and weight aspects of the frame itself. So simplicity there with not having a future shock is something that uh, is needed to hit those targets and make sure we're really shooting for the UCI minimum weight. And when it comes to the overall compliance of the frame or the, the ride quality, we're focusing on uh, a balance from your front to rear so that riders over those longer races still remain comfortable and don't have that same sensation that they might've had a number of years ago on a more aero frame where they're getting kind of beat up. Um, but we're always looking at the, the best possible way to ensure that that same feature is, is available across the line. But for the Tarmac platform, a feature shock is not part of the DNA of, of that platform. And um, I also noticed from from when you guys launched this bike, from when you, you guys will launch it on Tuesday, this episode got on Thursday, you, you produced some frames that you knew were not going to pass stiffness tests, but were 20% lighter than the tarmac frame that has been put into to production. How, how light are we talking? How, how light did you manage to get down with it being sort of passable to be ridden? Uh, that's a good question. 20% uh, lighter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have the, the actual numbers there, and those were 
those were tests that we did on the SL6 frame chassis well before even uh, SL6 had been launching. So it gave us an idea of what was feasible when it comes to just the specific layup of the frame versus the overall surface area that we have uh, to play with or what might have been adjusted for a future frame itself. And it's the ability to do certain things like that that allows us to make big performance jumps and to really know that whatever we're targeting as a product team is, is feasible moving forward um, and getting that feedback throughout the entire process. So that happened you know, well over two years ago as this project was just starting. You said oh, that one the, oh, oh, go on, Dave, one I was going to say, you, uh, you, you, um, the SL7, but the development began when the SL6 was born and that you're already sort of working towards these new goals. So you must be work now working towards the SL8, I guess on that sort of theory and that basis. But is it hard to sort of know where the next big gains are going to be made? Because you're at the UCI weight limit. You're almost as fast as the fastest aero bikes on the market. So surely in terms of a, a product development side of things, it must be quite daunting to know where the next big gains are going to come from, unless there's a huge jump in carbon fiber technology or a huge discovery in terms of aerodynamics going within the next sort of six months. Yeah, we always finish a project and you're like, man, how do you how do you top this now at this point? And sometimes you get to the point where you need to put something in production and there might be some things left on the table. And with SL7, you know, we truly checked off all the boxes that we had hoped for. But as we always move forward and we learn things from other platforms, it does open up the opportunity for future development and future R&D to really understand where we can go if rules change or if, if things uh, present themselves. So you can always expect something new that's gonna be pushing the, the bar a little bit higher. I was gonna ask um, earlier when we are talking about weight and going as, as light as possible without regards for ultimately the kind of frames robustness, how much, uh, how, how annoying is it to know that riders will always sit on the top tube and how much weight could you save there if you just said, look, don't sit on this. It's just going to be a kind of can-like structure. Just don't, don't ding it, don't dent it, and we can save you know, how much weight. Uh, to be honest, you know, every frame has to be safe regardless of how it's ridden. And there are a number of tests that are done to prevent people from potentially cracking their top tube from sitting on it. But a lot of times there's not much else that would be saved there because we're creating frames that they can pass all of these tests for a reason because they're all contributing to the overall performance of the entire frame. So it's not just adding a bunch of extra material, it's just how you're using that material to ensure that you can pass these tests. So I wouldn't necessarily say we're, we could save much from stopping people from sitting on their top tube, but it's certainly not something people should do because it's just not safe. <laughs> And, you got to um, crack, crack your frame elsewhere from crashing versus yeah. uh, from sitting on it. Yeah, right. Um, and I was struck by just looking back through the um, you know the annals of the tarmac. It's been around in one form or another since 2002. And that original E5 made out of uh, Columbus um, aluminium tubing. It's pretty. It's just still a joy to behold. And one of the things I noticed is it almost has the exact same little seat tube scoop for the rear wheel that came back into the tarmac range. And how much of previous bike design influences what you're doing now and how cyclic is bike design? Is it sometimes a bit wacky how 
far away we go from point A to point B, only to come back at point A again? You could certainly say that, and I think even the Venge platform is something that's that's done that, pushing things to the extreme to really see where we could go, both from a design perspective, but also from a performance perspective. And it's we certainly don't feel like we need to stick to a, a specific aesthetic just to follow the family's heritage or, or design, because we always want to make the, the right bike for the rider and allow the performance to really speak for itself. So as you can see in just the last couple of generations, some have been drastic departures from prior generations, but have offered a significant benefit to the rider. Mm -hmm. I guess from if you're an SL6 owner and you're thinking, do I get an SL7? One of those big benefits would be that number, 45 seconds, um, which your wind tunnel testing has kind of shown out to be the case of how much faster the SL7 is at 40k an hour compared to the SL6. That's a decent amount of time. And I always wonder, do you ever stick your bikes next to your TT bikes? So what does what would Avenge and what would the SL7 look like next to the Shiv? Because that's a bike, the triathlon version of that is no holds barred, crazy frame shapes, all kinds of fairings, because it doesn't have to be UCI compliant. So what's the difference there in speed? Yeah, there's certainly a difference and it's tough sometimes to truly understand the, the real differences because your position is so much different from the rider on board. But with a bike like the Shiv, you know, that's meant for riders at different scenarios in terms of the crosswinds or the, the yaw of the wind they'll see. So there's a lot more surface area on that frame, giving riders more benefit for that crosswind performance. So from a weighted yaw perspective, they could be going quite a bit faster, whereas uh, a tarmac is more focused on lower yaw, higher speeds, or riding in, in groups. Um, but we, we don't typically toss those two bikes in the tunnel side by side because it just wouldn't do both those frames uh, justice without a, a rider on board or just a, a raw test. But there is, there's a horse for every course and uh, <laughs> it makes it difficult sometimes to, to look at that. But certainly in development, we can say, hey, we've done this and it's given us this result. So we can pull from that idea and, and know what's going on there. Yeah. And as you say there, it's really crucial to be testing a bike, not like in the old days where you just stuck maybe even just a frame on some non-moving wheels in a wind tunnel. Now you have to have riders. Uh, and I didn't realize this, but the wind tunnel, so that's W-I-N, which is specialized wind tunnel. Uh, see what they did there. The wind tunnel can fit up to eight riders and bikes. Is that right? And so yeah, you're we've... working with your teams on not just aero stuff, but positioning for a sprint train, for example. Yep, yeah, it's a big benefit to be able to put in multiple riders into the tunnel to understand the the order of riders, the size of different riders, how far apart they're drafting each other, whether it's a time trial or a sprint lead out train. And that's something with, uh, when we have a couple riders, it's a test will run just so that the team has that information for whenever that scenario might come up and they can look for those marginal differences just to ensure they're, you know, really putting all their cards on the table when it comes to a sprint lead out when the higher speed is truly impact aero performance and whatever watch you can save for a rider is super important. Well, I love that. that changed... the... Go on. Sorry, James. Go, go ahead. I was just going to say, has that, has that changed the complexion of the specialized Sunday, uh, specialized uh, lunchtime ride with the guys? Are there people sneaking <laughs> off after hours to hone their position? Oh, it's always an arms race. We always joked about that with uh, whenever there's new aero product coming out, it's only a matter of time before everyone in the group has that on for Friday Worlds or 
you know, people start getting angry at each other for having that new aero helmet or, or, or bike and <laughs> you really need it to survive. <laughs> one Funny bike to rule them all. <laughs> so, very, so very last question then, is this the end of the Venge? Will we get another one? Uh, for right now, the Venge uh, is not a bike that our World Tour riders will be racing. It's, um, it's an idea that's helped this company really progress in terms of innovation and the idea behind uh, aero performance or aero is everything is, is truly important to all of our performance product. Uh, so for the time being, the Venge will kind of exist as a, as the idea. It's no longer going to be a, a bike that's in our line. Great. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining us, Cam. And we'll let yeah, you get, you, get back to your, your day. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. Bye. See ya. So James, Cameron Piper, lovely bloke, um, and very chatty for half six in the morning, the day before the biggest embargo of the year. Yeah, uh, hats off to him. That's a man that can definitely do his job really well because that's a, a lot of stuff to fit in, let alone us guys. So thank you very much again, Cam, for that. Um, some really interesting stuff there. Mm. So what, uh, go on, James. What did you take? What was the biggest thing you took from that, from what Cam said about the new SL7? What's... What's really the biggest takeaway that you think is going to be coming from this bike? I think it's what we started with. That it's a really good question you asked him to kick off with. Is the aero bike dead? So this whole diversification into loads of different categories, as they obviously always call them in the industry, that um, mm. started off around 2014, I guess. Or actually, no, arguably earlier. It started off in about 2011, 2012 kind of with Specialized, where they really got a hold of that aero bike design that Cervelo had kind of pioneered with the soloist in around 08, 07, 08. Mm. And then Specialized came along with McLaren and developed the all-carbon fiber um, initial Venge. And that just kind of suddenly made everyone else sit up and take notice and go, right, we really need to start making very particular bikes and then off the back of that as well not off the back but you know in tandem with that then you've got this kind of endurance category emerging with this idea that people wanted longer bike uh yeah longer wheelbase bikes a bit more relaxed for these sportive sort of events that were becoming more popular so it's that it's the coming back round full circle to the idea that hang on maybe m plus one is m plus none and it's just n give me a bike just one bike please so this is really interesting because of all the bikes that have been launching recently, so the SL7, the, the Tarmac, the Trekamonda, uh, Giants, TCR, Advance, the, they've all become more aerodynamic while retaining themselves as the, the old school classification for that bike would have been a lightweight climbing race bike. But they're not now no more because they're almost as fast as aero bikes, which... I think proves your point that that whole idea of I need a aerodynamic bike, I need a light bike, and then I need an endurance bike is basically going to be redundant within the next year, if not already. You know, Specialized have already said, Cam, Cam said there that the Venge isn't going to be a bike that they'll offer to their pro racers going forward. Peter Sagan, Sam Bennett, they're not going to be racing on Venges in pro bike races in bunch sprints. They're going to be on the tarmac. Which I, I think, like, two years ago, would I be right in saying that was pretty unthinkable? Yeah. To think that there'd have been one bike that really does do it all and that there isn't a need for 
a super lightweight bike or a super aero bike because you can just do that with this one bike. Um, I, I mean, one thing that I'm not, one thing that I'm like, the jury's still out for me with is the getting rid of rim brake and not right. offering that as an option because one, I feel like there is still that consumer, that bit of a niche who just want to make the lightest bike they can. And disc brakes are still heavier than rim. You can yep. build a bike up lighter with rim brake and you'll get hill climbers out there. You'll get guys who just want the lightest bike possible and they can't do that with disc. Plus, I do also feel like it's the bike industry pushing us into a market they just want to sell. Is that cynical or am I just being, you know, someone who's such a traditionalist and wants to stick to rim brake? You know, I'm not saying that I don't think disc brakes are good. I think they're excellent. They're far superior in stopping, especially in bad weather. That's a fact. They can let you run wider tires, which means you can be more comfortable. That's a fact. But I don't know if we really need to like completely turn our back on rim brakes now. But it seems like that's happening anyway. With like Cannondale producing bikes that don't come in rim brakes, specialised here with the tarmac, that's not going to have a rim brake option. There's that choice doesn't exist for the consumer yet, like anymore. No, that's true. And cycling has always existed as a professional sport to sell things, whether it's um, other people's face cream or your own tires or your own disc brakes. So there is an element of that. I think that cynicism is kind of justified. Equally, there are there is just the argument of, well, provide any rider, especially your pro teams, with the best possible piece of kit, and that is going to be a bike with disc brakes. Mm. And why would you continue to make something that you know to be somewhat substandard in the face of this other product when it's not like specialized will never make another rim brake bike again they just won't offer their top tier bike like you know the sl7 with rim brakes because the person who's wanting to spend upwards of four and a half grand on this sort of thing going up to ten and a half for the s-works duo race model they're not they're they're interested only in the best and and I and actually I kind of quite like it because there are still it still leaves room in the market actually for developments by you know a brand such as Factor with their O2 VAM mm. bike that's a really nice super light climbers bike that still comes in rim brake because it still sees you know there's a bit of a small but like a bit of a vacuum left by the bigger guns moving away from top level bikes with rim brakes to letting a smaller but still great producer like Factor come along with some really yeah, just elegant exciting lovely bikes to ride so i would say at this stage i don't mind too much about it it seems to stack up in my head that of course specialized would do it and if you want to be really cynical yeah it's totally numbers driven it's just easier to be making one thing than two if you're having to make all these molds all this tooling and stuff in your factory in china you can cut all that in half that's why bike brands would like to offer as few sizes of bikes as possible it's why mike burrows invented the sloping geometry for giants so they could have small medium and large and not have seven sizes it's why press fit bottom brackets came along so you could make assembly quicker it's all about speeding up and simplifying manufacture to keep those margins and create profit but hey it's a kit-based industry profit is king it's what gives us the good stuff because these people like specialized stay in business so that is the cynical side i also see the performance side and I would be buying mm. an SL7 if I could afford it. Would you? That's interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I would definitely ride it. But I don't know. I really want to ride one because I want to know 
the SL6 was a bike that our editorial team, I say, would held in high regard. Would you agree? Yeah. I think so. Stu, our editor at large, he he rode it. Peter Stewart, our digital editor, he had a long time on that SL6. I know that you took it to Tuscany for a sportif on the Strada Bianca roads, and Indeed, I yeah. myself also rode it uh, along for a, like, quite a long time. And all of us really sung the praises of that bike. And and it's one that we often fall guilty of comparing other bikes to in reviews as like a a sort of a benchmark, don't we? Yeah. So to to consider that the SL7 can surpass that, and from what we hear from our colleague Stu, who has had the SL7 for a while now, it does feel like it has surpassed that, um, is really exciting, I think, mm. because... Yeah any improvement in bikes is something that we would encourage if it's for the good of the industry and for the consumer. Um, I also think it's quite interesting how it feels like there's no point in chasing super aero, super light because of the UCI and because of the limits that they put on stuff. So the 6.8 kilo rule, because that was, you know, that was originally put in place because it was considered that any bike underneath the 6.8 kilo mark would be unsafe. We're now at a point where technology and material means that we can easily go under 6.8 kilos and it'd be completely fine to ride and to race on and be safe. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum with the aero side of things in terms of the UCI limiting geometries and shapes so that, you know, bikes still remain traditional looking. It does feel like until the UCI relaxes both of those rules, we're going to be in this point where bikes are just going to try and find the best of all worlds and produce bikes like the Tarmac SL7 and the, Amonda, the new Amonda, for instance, rather than sort of chasing what the Venge Vias did, which was a bike that you spoke to, to Cam about and that you rode when it first came out, um, which is a bit of a shame, don't you think? I would love to see bike brands really push the limits in terms of weight and aerodynamics. Um, yes. Tell, but then yeah. there's no point. There's no point if if they're pro racers, if they're pro bike riders, if Peter Sagan can't ride a wacky Venge at Tour de France, no one's going to buy it because no one will see him on it, and no one will really care about the bike, except from like the the very few who are really interested in the nicheties and the and the geeky stuff. We're we're part of that, I guess. So until the UCI goes, you know what? Do what you want in terms of frame shape. Do yeah, of course you can go down to five and a half kilos. That's perfectly safe with carbon fiber these days it's just not going to happen which is really sad i guess mm. yeah no, it, is, it is ridiculous especially as i don't know a bike brand like car like um like canyon was making they made a bike an experimental bike way back when based on the uh, early molds of the cf so the cf slx as it is now uh, and that came in at something astonishing like uh just on, like i'm gonna have to look this up 2.4 kilos i think just with super tricked out parts and that's not to say that you could be racing on that but at the same time it worked it was a bike it only had a few gears <laughs> but, <it's> like, <laughs> but, it, but even, was, even days ago we've been able to do it but even so the, you've got the, the the current there's the ultimate cf evo 10 limited which off the peg is six kilos so it's 800 grams under what you're allowed to ride in a uci race and that's not come with that doesn't come with any sort of like insane uh, THM or what's um, AX lightness componentry. It comes with zips 
and like Zip TO2s and SRAM Axis, which is a 12 speed group set. Um, but it comes in at six kilos and it's perfectly fine and safe to ride. And I'm pretty sure that we've reviewed it for the mag and it rode perfectly. But the UCI yeah. are just not willing to budge at the moment, it seems, on on these laws and these rules, which is I, I would, I'd love to see them do because I'd love to see somebody like Pete, um, not Peter Sagan, sorry, Chris Froome or Egan Bernal giving it as hard as they can up a mountain pass on the lightest bike they can because they're going to go faster. Yeah. But the UCI won't let us because they're spoiled. They're boring. They're spoiled. They are terribly boring. And they have... They they've pushed yeah they, as you say they have kind of they've painted bike designers into a bit of a corner, and that's unfortunately why you've got this real homogeneity in looks because there's only so many places you can go with the UCI rulebook in mind, not just in in weight but in that frame shape. So those dropped seat stays that we've, the press is always <laughs> banging on about, you've got them intersecting lower down the seat tube than they once did and the last you know the last bastion holding out for that traditional frame shape was cannondale with its super six mm. and much to the consternation of lots of its fans it too went drop seat stays for the latest super six and it's almost just like the industry kind of just rolling over and going do you know what we just can't improve on this and i would suggest yeah. that actually that they is can't, well yeah that's the thing they can't the they so. can't and in the current, yeah, but the current guide, guidelines they can't, and that is a shame for the consumer because variation is great. There are far too many bikes that look too much like each other, and that's why you know we discussed it last time. Why a brand like Pinarello, love them or hate them, in terms of their looks, keeps going after those frame shapes because at least it separates that bike. And it's a shame if you look back at bikes in the eighties and nineties, they were mad, and then bikes just have kind of become quite boring again <laughs> dare i say beautiful to ride but a little bit boring to look i just wanted to clarify the lightest bike situation go I on did say 2.4 which is that 2.4 that's crazy isn't it so but canyon did make a bike called the project with a k 3.7 which as you guessed it was a 3.7 key um 3.7 kilo bike and they made that back in 2008 it was like a house project mm. and it's pretty stripped out and it's got a little down tube shifter um to do the mech so it doesn't actually have uh stis or ergo levers um but it's kind of it looks sort of basic really it's just got tubulars and some uh fancy fancy pants as they were at the time cranks and and still doesn't beat this other guy called uh gunter may who really went to town with a dremel and made a bike that's 2.7 kilos based around the sram red group set and a kind of custom uh super sparse um frame frame set that really does look like it would break if you sat on the top tube mm. and do you also remember do you remember the tafosi mons that we had in that was 4.61 kilos i do but, that but we is... couldn't ride it we weren't allowed, we weren't allowed yeah. to ride it that's a case in point it's uh no offense to tafosi but that's a marketing it's not it is a marketing stunt in as much as yes that bike does weigh that much but it's not because the frame is necessarily that light, because the frame isn't. If you take the Trek Imonda, that is a seriously light disc uh, disc brake frame, mm. the latest one, which incidentally is actually more is actually heavier than the last one. Well, yeah, that's a lot of people complained about it yeah. actually increasing that's, weight. It's beefed up. Yes, yeah, gone six hundred ninety eight grams now. Whoa, it's like sixty grams more. I know but it's had a big it, lunch. Yeah, yeah. 
And the reason it can do that is because parts are getting lighter. The reason that Tafosi can bring out a bike such as the Mons with a relatively standard 850 gram frame set, but get it down to five kilos is because it just puts these incredibly expensive parts, THM clavicular cranks, e-brakes, uh, you know, you name it, Schmolka stuff. Mm. And that's that's where you can make the weight savings. That's the annoying thing in my head when I think about the UCI weight limit. It's like, actually, whether the UCI likes it or not, bike manufacturers are still making lighter frames. So this argument that like, oh, you're going to make an unsafe bike. So like they already, they already are. Like put a weight limit on the frame. That's a really important, and the wheels, those are important parts of the bike you don't want to fail. Putting a, a 6.8 kilo weight limit on a bike does nothing except for occasionally means that someone like Egan Bernal has to put uh, a couple of lead coins down his um, seat tube so that he just, he makes the weight or has to add an extra head, like, you know, you can afford to run that massive SRM head unit because your bike's already under 6.8 kilos. It makes no sense. And I, 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 I do sometimes wonder how, how, the ty- how many times the pros do stick to that rule. Do yeah. You, do you not think, like, because bikes are coming off the peg now a little bit less than 6.8 kilos, and the way that some pro bikes are built up, you look at it and you're like, ah, uh, is that 6.8 kilos? It looks like it could be lighter. So you do ask, you know, Mm. you do ask yourself do they sometimes you know say it's 6.8 kilos because they've got two bidons of sand in it yeah and, and then when they take the two bidons of sand out it's not it's six kilos i don't yeah. know i, I, mean, I wouldn't in, be surprised in theory yeah you're totally right uh the reality is well in theory actually yeah the, the commissaire should be weighing all of these things the reality is perhaps they don't weigh everybody's also just looking at a bike you might not see where the ballast has been added because it would be underneath uh, the BB say because it's trying to lower that center of gravity. Although people used to stick um, lead underneath the saddle, which I always thought was a bit strange. And mm. someone did once tell me that at a pro Conti level, riders used to put ice cubes in their seat tubes, and they would of course get weighed at, before the stage, and their bike would make weight, and then the ice cubes would melt out through the bottom bracket during the stage, and they'd be <laughs> riding a significantly lighter bike after about half an hour. That's incredible. That's, I hope that's true. I really hope it's true. It came from a reputable source whose name I shan't uh, reveal, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it, does, it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise us, would it? Well, you know <laughs> what? Because it sounds safe. Maybe we should try that and report back. Yeah. Or making a bike entirely out of ice. It's mm. designed just to slowly melt until you are just running over the finish line. And you can get you can get, you can get um, Celine Dion to do it because she famously was ice sculpted in the video to think twice. Really? Yeah. Interesting. But well, there, that's, you there you go. There's a tangent for you. Uh, I wanted us to both make our predictions about what we think a bike. You know, what else is going to happen to bikes for them to converge on just the one thing? You got any thoughts on that? You know, what... I. I think in the same way that the Cervelo Caledonia has got 35 mil tire clearance, I think that this, I, I, I feel like bikes are going to become more, more off-roady and yep. there's just going to be the ability to take a normal road bike off-road much m- more readily. So you've got stuff like the, is it the Rondo Rut yep. that you could convert from 700 mil road tires and it's aero to then swapping out the 650b gravel wheels with chunky like 42 mil tires i feel like brands will just try and get to a point where you can have a road frame that can fit say 38 40 42 mil tires 
mm-hmm. and they'll be like, this is actually pretty fast if you chuck some 28 mils on. Um, but then you can also swap it out for a pair of 42 knobblies. It fits in the frame and you can take it on gravel. Um, I think that would be the, the goal for most bike brands, in my opinion. Yep. Someone like Pinarello, who are quite adverse to making too many different bikes, will probably want to make something like the gravel that can also be rode on road mm-hmm. a lot more. I don't know. I feel like that will be the way because it seems like the bike industry is also trying to push us towards gravel and off-roading more. Yeah. Um, but what about you, James? Yeah. I think I think yeah, a lot of uh, what I think you, you just covered there. It's those tire clearances. Tire clearances will just consistently consistently get bigger. So the uh, SL7 that we just chatted about that's got room for thirty-two mil tires on it now. Open have just released so that's gerard vrooman from ex Cervelo founder open bikes have just released the mind which is their first road bike that's got 35 mil tire clearance the new uh bmc uh time mach- uh, team machine another 32 mil clearance bike so yeah. yeah those those wider tires and within that i really wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing dropped seat stays uh, sorry dropped chain stays so like you've seen on bikes such as the open up where you've got one chainstay much lower than the other and that allows you to bring uh to have shorter chainstays with the same angle and provide wider tire clearances so or, that'll, come up, that'll be on a road bike or alternatively like the diverge introduced where it just thinned out the chainstay but made that part where it's thinner to allow the tire clearance out of solid carbon yeah yeah, that'll because be another thing. It will add a little bit of weight on, but you don't have to drop the seat stay, which means it doesn't. Uh, the chain stay, sorry, which means it won't affect geometry mm. and handling and wheelbase, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, or anything like that. You'll just be able to thin out the carbon there, make it stronger by making it a solid piece, yeah. and then upping your tire clearance to thirty-two, forty-two. Sorry, on a road yeah. bike. That's it. I just think this time next year you'll be hard pressed to be able to buy a bike even. Uh, high-end race bike with anything less than 28 mil tires on it the wheels will have been designed around that too and then within that there's a few little things that i think are kind of sneaking back in so the seat the integrated seat mast do you remember that was the sort of thing that like brands like villiers and stuff were super keen on back in the 2010s 2012s that's mm. so uh you don't have a seat post you just have one bit of carbon tube goes all the way up to a seat topper that then holds your saddle on which giant do still yeah, so Giant, yeah, exactly. So Giant never really left it alone, but they did bring it back, re-implement it for the TCR. It stayed on the Defy for a while, but it's on the TCR again. Um, Trek, uh, actually, I think Trek have done away with it for the Amanda, but they did have it on the older one. Uh, the, again, the Open Mind, that's that's got it. So I think that maybe that's a good weight saving, and also it's a really good way of tuning the ride characteristics of a bike because you don't have this tube inside a tube, which creates a really stiff kind of junction point and then as we touched upon with with cam one piece bar systems i reckon they're dead they'll they'll be a thing where we went do you remember those they were really annoying weren't they really difficult to service so really that's a stem, really stem cool a for place. like 10 really minutes cool. <laughs> yeah really cool for 10 minutes great place to eat your sandwiches off if you're having a picnic because there's some really massive real estate on those stems but they're just impractical and that's why the bigger brands have now, you know, the treks and stuff have gotten to those back to those two piece. Sem- they look integrated. They have all those performance benefits, aero benefits, but they're not integrated. You can adjust the uh, fore aft kind of roll 
of the bar. So yeah, and press fit bottom brackets, you will only see those on low end bikes. Top end bikes will come back with threaded. Was surprised that Specialized went with a 68 mil uh, British thread standard. So you can't get more than in theory a 24 mil diameter axle for your cranks in there. I'll, I'll, is... I'll be honest with you there, James. Um, yeah. I still don't fully understand bottom brackets and I'm a cycling journalist, but that's one for definitely another day. That's one for a different, not one for, another, yeah, no one needs to understand it except for go threads, go threads or go home. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, let's bring an end to the episode now. Um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, leave us a review on Apple, uh, comment, tell us what you like and what you don't like about the episode. Uh, leave us a joke, fact about Greg Wallace, a five-star review. We'll be very thankful if you do that. Um, any feedback, uh, anything you want to add about bottom brackets or the new SL7 or if you want to criticise my opinion piece on Ineos Grenadiers, just come and get in touch at cyclistmag on Twitter or cyclist.dennis.co.uk. Uh, but for now, we'll see you again in two weeks. And James, I'll chat to you later. Nice one. Good to chat to you, mate. Speak soon. Bye.